Hey listeners, I'm Joe from the Court of Valids podcast and there are some things I wanted to talk about today. Normally, we're a comic podcast that uploads weekly where you can check the show notes for which comics we cover that week and their timestamps so that you can skip over those titles if it's something that you haven't read yet or just aren't interested in reading. It's been two weeks since our last episode and I wanted to upload something to make up for it. In this episode, I want to cover a few things that came out in the past two weeks, both comic stories and comic news. You can still check the show notes in case it's something you haven't read yet or aren't interested in reading. So with that out of the way, let's get started with Pennyworth R.I.P. number one. This was written by James Tinian and Peter J. Tomasi. The story is basically the Bat family mourning Alfred's death in their, each in their own unique way. I thought it was a cool idea to have both the current Batman writers work on this story together. And I also feel that you can tell who wrote what scenes. It seems, once again, main DC continuity is ignoring Bendis' decision to make Tim Drake Robin, and then also Drake now in the Young Justice run, and also just ignoring the whole Young Justice run entirely. Because Tim Drake is here, he's on Earth, and he is going by Red Robin. I also wasn't really a fan of how Barbara was portrayed in the story. I understand that everybody grieves in their own way, and some people are more aggressive. But I feel like she spent a good majority of this story just yelling at Bruce and telling him that he's the one that needs to change things around. He's the one that has to stand up and do something, not do what he normally does, which is just sit and sulk and just absorb all of this sadness. I also felt it was an interesting way to have Rick Grayson present and able to squeeze a Nightwing story out of him. It was a really nice touch to see how he admits that he doesn't really remember Alfred, but Alfred did go to visit him in the hospital, and he asks Bruce what's a story that Dick Grayson would have told in this instance, and allows Bruce to kind of open up in that way. Overall, I thought the story wasn't terrible. It wasn't amazing either, so I'd give it like a 3 out of 5. It was very eh. The next story I want to talk about is Superman Heroes number one. This was written by a majority of the Metropolis Society, Brian Michael Bendis, Greg Rucka, and Matt Faction. This story was pretty much how the good people in Clark's life have felt about him coming out as Superman. As I'm sure you listeners know and are aware by now, I dislike Bendis and what he's done with DC Comics so far. And personally, I still feel that this is where Bendis gets it wrong when it comes to Superman. It's not that Superman is Clark Kent, it's that Clark Kent is Superman. I've always believed that yes, his powers are a big aspect of him being a superhero, but it's his morals and how he chooses to use those powers which truly make him Superman. Plus, he got those morals and sense of justice from living with the Kents and growing up in middle of America in Smallville. With this story, it was nice to see that a majority of the heroes weren't excited or thrilled or happy about Clark coming out. Just a couple tidbits with this one scene where it looked like a two-page spread, each hero getting their own little panel. Why is Jessica Cruz and the other characters from Justice League Odyssey there? They have been in the far sector of the universe since the end of the No Justice run and the beginning of the Justice League Odyssey run. Why is Harley Quinn there? Aside the fact that she has a miniseries with Poison Ivy that just ended last week where she was traveling the country, she's still a villain. I don't really remember her being a hero, so why would she be in the Hall of Justice? Also, why is Hawkman there? 
because Hawkman is still and has been possessed by his other life, Sky Tyrant, which was the Hawkman of Earth-3. And why is Martian Manhunter there? Depending when this is taking place, Martian Manhunter is still currently inside Apex Luther. But I digress. I did also enjoy seeing Bruce and Diana in a comfortable setting without their regular superhero outfits on. Though I wasn't a fan of Bruce's argument for not liking Clark coming out of Superman. Diana tries to assume that it's jealousy. That Bruce is jealous that he cannot come out to the world like Clark can. I really do not think that Bruce would sink that low. And just something with the phrasing of his argument I was a little bit uncomfortable with. But again, it was really nice to see Bruce and Diana in the Wayne Manor, dressed in just regular civilian clothes, talking with each other, having tea or something. Also, another big gripe that I had was Jimmy Olsen completely disregarding the fact Lois had told him Clark's identity before Clark got the chance to. And in Superman 18, Jimmy literally joked with Clark about this on the rooftop. It happened in Bendis' own story, and in Superman Heroes, Jimmy is acting hurt that Clark didn't tell him his identity. I don't understand. Once again, I am not impressed with this Bendis story. I did not like it. I am not looking forward to Superman Villains number one, which is also set to come out, and this is going to show the villain's reactions to Superman outing himself as Clark Kent. Next we have up Justice League number 41 written by Robert Venditti with the artist Matt Ryan and Aaron Lopresti. This is the Eradicator once again making some more moves on Earth to make it a Daxamite colony. Batman and Madame Xanadu join the fight against Eradicator and the Daxamites in Metropolis. Superman reminds the Eradicator he is not only Kal-El of Krypton, son of Jor-El, but also Clark Kent from Kansas. I get that the other writers are trying to make Clark proud with this decision of outing his identity. I'm not a fan of it, as you all can tell. I feel Superman needs to have Clark Kent a secret. Um, so him just kind of shouting this, I don't know, I didn't like it. Eradicator states to the world how he will begin mass eradication in one hour as he's holding up Wonder Woman to show the heroes can't help the citizens of Earth. And that was a pretty big move because both Batman and Superman have agreed on multiple times. It takes a lot to take down Wonder Woman. So to see that scene, oh man, no, I, I need to read issue 42 when that comes out. And then we also have flash forward number six. This is the last issue in the miniseries that was done by Scott Lobdell and Brett Booth. I really enjoyed it. I felt like this was a good story arc to kind of bring Wally back around to the side of the good guys. So in this last issue, Wally accepted his decision to sit in the Mobius chair and absorb all the knowledge in the multiverse, which would destroy the last of this dark multiverse plague and hopefully save his kids that were trapped on this earth created from his own fears. That's how the dark multiverse worked. He also makes a deal with Tempest Fuganaut, promising Wally that he would free his kids, Giant Iris, and take them back home to Iris. The Mobius chair, big important factor with this now, has been used by a couple people in DC Comics. It is famously known to be used by Metron. It has also been used by Batman, Owlman of Earth-3, 
and recently Dr. Manhattan in a Doomsday Clock event. And now it's also been fused with Dr. Manhattan, who is basically a god on Earth. So, my gosh, is this thing powerful. Fuganon agreed with Wally, and as Wally sits in the Mobius chair, he brings his kids back to Iris on Earth Zero. I thought that was a beautiful scene. It was really nice to see Linda remember these kids and just have that whole little reunion. And then you also see Wally accepting his role in the multiverse now, aside from the decision to sit in the Mobius chair. And what was different about Wally taking this position in the chair compared to the others is that Fuganon has even told Wally he will lose his emotion. He will just be knowledge. Wally has this monologue where he's saying this is going to be a new him, a new we, and a new role for the Mobius chair. And he is seen showing emotion as he's sitting there, mentioning a new vocation for he who sits in the chair. And along with this new design, he has a new blue outfit that goes with the Mobius chair color scheme, but he also has the Dr. Manhattan symbol on his forehead. So I'm very excited to see what is going to become of this and where it's going to show. Apparently it's going to continue in Flash number 750, which is set to come out the second week of March, I believe. And the last comic I want to catch you guys up with again is Deceased the Unkillables number one, written by Tom Taylor, and the art was done by Carl Mostert. Mostert? Not exactly sure. But Deceased the Unkillables is a continuation from Tom Taylor's title Deceased, and it's to show what the villains were up to during this apocalyptic event. So it starts off with Deathstroke, Slade Wilson, discovering that his healing factor makes him immune to the anti-life equation virus that was spreading and turning people into zombies. And that was a pretty interesting take. I was not expecting that. I was also not really expecting that because I felt Deceased is very similar to Marvel zombies. And I do believe that Wolverine was a zombie in there. I never actually read it. I've only seen a couple pages here and there. But I know that Wolverine has a healing factor similar to Deathstroke. So it was interesting to see that this makes him immune. Jason Todd also discovered that Bruce and the rest of the Bat family are dead. And searches for the only two lifelines in the Bat family, which were Cassandra Kane and Commissioner Gordon. He also takes Ace from the Batcave, which was a nice scene showing that he still cares about this family. That yes, he was the outcast. He was the son that left and went down a more of a darker path. But it was still his family and he still helped make graves for them. He carved their names out. It was a really nice touch. I did appreciate that. And I also was a fan of him revealing his identity, Commissioner Gordon, explained to James saying that even though Bruce wasn't a man of many words, he did care and respect Commissioner Gordon enough to keep a life tracking thing on him to make sure that he's okay. One of the weird things I read in this was Jason tying the corpse of Joker to the hood of the Batmobile. It was just, it was such a random thing, but it fits very well with Jason's personality, I feel like. This is finally his revenge in its own little way. He didn't get to kill the Joker himself like he's wanted to for years. But he does get to basically demolish this corpse by strapping it to the hood of the Batmobile and driving wherever they needed to go. Also, the fact that the Batmobile's password to disable non-lethal safety protocols is Remember Joe Chill. Which, for those of you who don't know, Joe Chill was the name of the mugger, thief, whatever you want to call him, that murdered Thomas and Martha Wayne. 
I also thought it was funny to see Jason's face when Commissioner Gordon introduced him to these orphans in Bloodhaven as, oh, this is Robin. You just see this look of disgust on Jason's face. Like, why would you ever call me that? And also, one of the last word bubbles was Jason talking to this lead orphan in the orphanage saying orphans have to stick together. I was a fan of Deceased up until that last issue. I did not really enjoy how they kind of solved this but I am excited to read the second issue of this when it comes out. So within these past two weeks, we've also had a little bit of comic news come out. One of the main ones being Batman The Adventures Continues is going to be a new comic arriving in May 2020 written by Paul Dini, Alan Burnett, and Ty Templeton. This is a continuation of the 90s classic Batman cartoon of Batman the Animated Series. And we are going to see some stories that weren't explored in the show, like Jason Todd and the Red Hood. This is something I know many people are excited about. James Tinian actually tweeted the cover for this story, captioning himself as James, why are you crying? Because it's just something that touches everybody. We've all loved this show. It is number one rated on multiple platforms for being one of the best adaptations of Batman. It has brought many good characters such as Harley Quinn into main continuity. It has altered origins which have also changed in main continuity such as Mr. Freeze and I believe Killer Croc as well. But it's something I'm very excited to read. And I'm actually in the process of re-watching the animated series on DC Universe. Speaking of Batman, we got new reveals of Matt Reeves' new Batman suit for Robert Pattinson coming out for the new Batman movie set in 2021. We saw a couple second clip showing Batman in the shadows. You don't see the full cowl and you don't see the full suit in this video. You do get a good look at the chest plate. You do get a good look at at least the bottom half of his helmet. You notice a high collar. So you know that they're taking inspiration from multiple different bat suits. Everybody who saw the high collar immediately thought of Sean Gordon Murphy with his Batman White Knight story and how he takes pride in the fact that he gave Batman a collar. I'm also really enjoying this bat suit. It does seem like an early concept outfit with the plated armor kind of similar to Christian Bale's. In a way, Christian Bale's uh, Batman armor came from defunct military projects that Bruce was able to use instead. In this case, Robert Pattinson, because this is supposed to be his early years as Batman, it kind of shows more of protection over design, which is why it looks more armor-esque. And I know a lot of people aren't really a fan of this, especially after getting a very well done comic adaptation, which was Ben Affleck's Batman costume. Some people kind of see this as reverting. I don't really see it that way. I feel like they're two different Batman because they're telling two different stories. This Robert Pattinson one is a Batman early in his career where Ben Affleck's Batman was very late in his career. We also get some other set photos which show what kind of looks like a Batman cowl motorcycle helmet compared to the goggles on this cowl which weren't seen in the video preview. So maybe it does have to do with something the motorcycle that he was sitting on. There are also rumors of the bat symbol on his chest being made from Joe Chill's gun, which is very similar to the Kevin Smith Detective Comics 1000 story that was written. Basically saying like the thing that altered my life forever is now protecting me. It would be very cool to see if it is. 
I was thinking maybe they were going along the lines of what they did in the DC Universe show Titans, where Dick Grayson was able to push the Robin symbol on his armor and use it as a little batarang thing. I'm interested to see what else comes out of this Batman movie. I'm pretty excited to see this and any other reveals that may come out of it. So that's all I've got to say today. I do hope that you enjoyed this different style of an episode. I promise that we will have a regular episode with VMUs this weekend. And as always, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Court of Outlets. Let us know what comic you want us to cover next week. And make sure to stay up to date with our latest episodes by subscribing to the podcast on Anchor, Apple, Google, Spotify, Pocket Cast, Breaker, Radio Public, and everywhere else you may listen to your podcast. So take care, listeners, and you will hear from us this weekend.